0: You're listening to Five Things with Lisa Birnbach.
1: Hi, I'm Lisa Birnbach, and this is Five Things That Make Life Better, sponsored by One Day University. That's onedayletteru.com, where you can find over 200 talks from America's greatest professors. My guest this week is drummer and co-founder of Talking Heads and Tom Tom Club, Chris Franz. He has written a memoir called Remain in Love, and though it's a memoir and does what memoirs do, which is trace his life until this point, it's really about the enduring love affair he has with his wife and bandmate, Tina Wemmuth, and the story of how Talking Heads started, Tom Tom Club, the tours, the recording studios, one was in the Bahamas, and it's a really a great story because it turns out so well. I will say this, I now feel that my new standard of romance is find someone who thinks of you the way Chris France thinks of his wife, Tina. But first, let me tell you what I'm thinking about this week. I have been watching the impeachment proceedings on and off the last few days, and it hurts my head, my heart, my ears, my belly, everything to hear Donald Trump's voice again. It's like our abuser has come back to haunt us. But I do believe that we need to see this process through. How can any parent teach his or her or their kid right from wrong without everyone having to experience the consequences of bad behavior? I think about this a lot, actually. I heard my share of, how come Andrew didn't get punished the way I did when I was raising my exhibits? And I just had to say, okay, I'm the meaner parent. I'm strict. I'm sorry. That's who I am compared to, you know, Andrew's mother. But in the end, I think my children are nicer. And I think that my kids respected limits that I put on them. And I think all kids do, to be honest. The impeachment managers from the House have done a superb job of presenting the jury a clear set of arguments for why Trump must be convicted. Now, the disrespect some Republicans have shown twiddling their fingers, putting their feet up and doodling, I'm talking about you, Rand Paul, you, Josh Hawley. That's disgusting, honestly. And if they vote to acquit, in my opinion, they are auditioning for a bigger piece of the bases vote. Ick. Okay? Ick. But let's go back to love because Valentine's Day is coming up and it's one of the trickier fake holidays, but yet I do know it's coming. And also I'm thinking about a wedding that I'm slowly planning. So I'm thinking about love and now My five things that make life better. Happy fake Valentine's Day to you too. Number one, Representative Jamie Raskin. Again, his opening argument which he presented to the Senate on Tuesday was eloquent and emotional. His love of his country is palpable, his words memorable. You can listen to them I've linked it on my website at LisaBernbach.com. Number two This video also on my website, which my friend Paul sent me and made me cry happy tears. Number three, my mom got her second vaccine, for which I'm quite grateful. Number four, Meyer lemons. I just bought some and they seem just, you know, so much more festive than regular old lemons. And I apologize to regular old lemons, but I'm I'm really enjoying the sweeter, more orange in color, fewer pittiness of the Meyer lemons. And number five, shopping local. My daughter, Exhibit B, and I have been talking about this. We're trying to patronize the shops that aren't Amazon, that aren't Apple, that aren't franchises, the shops that have one branch and they are working like hell to stay in business, no matter what they sell, food, sculpture, textiles. It's tough to expect people to buy new things during this shutdown, and especially if they've lost income. But I just bought a shirt. From a shop in Venice in Los Angeles called Salt, which has always been one of my favorite stores. And I'm going to try to mention a local shop every week for the next several weeks. And now, the happy romantic life of Chris Franz. Don't go away. We're back. It's Lisa Birnbach, and I'm going to fangirl for a second because my guest is Chris Franz, the drummer of, I'm going to say in parentheses, the Talking Heads, but the drummer of Talking Heads and co-founder and drummer of TomTom Club. And I can't say I'm the biggest fan, but I would like to think I'm one of your long devoted fans of your two bands. So welcome to the podcast.
0: Well, thank you, Lisa. I appreciate your fangirl sentiments. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Good. Uh, I have just finished reading your memoir, Remain in Love. And one of the reasons I thought we should do the interview this week is because Valentine's Day is approaching. You're like, we're all supposed to be 75% water, or our organs or the other 25%. But I think you have just a lot of love in you. Well,
0: thank you for noticing. I, I, <laughs> I, I, I do. You know, it's true. I, I'm one of those people that when I like somebody, I really like them. And when I love somebody, oh man, I really love them. So yes.
1: <laughs> it's so interesting that the love is the angle you focused on in this life story that you've told. You have had kind of a dream life, though. According to, unless you've left a lot out, you have had just a beautiful adventure, Uh, loving parents, uh, opportunities of all kinds. You got into art school. You met Tina Weymouth there. You fell in love with her. You asked her to join a new band you were starting. She wasn't a bass player, but she became one. And then boom, 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 boom. And here we are, you're old marrieds with children, and you're still happy.
0: Yes. And you're still in love. I know. It's remarkable, isn't it? You know, when when I sat down to write this memoir, I thought to myself, what is it about my life that's different from other rock and roll people's lives? Because I knew that many of the people that were going to read my book w- would be people that are interested in our band or our our various bands. Mm-hmm. And and I thought, well, the big difference is Tina. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> let's face it, my love affair with Tina Weymouth is what's in many ways defined my life even more than being in Talking Heads or being in Tom Tom Club. And I realize I'm a very fortunate man. And I also realized that this is something that separates me from a lot of the rock and roll community. You may find yourself in a beautiful house with a beautiful wife and you may ask yourself, well, how did I get here? The go Let the water hold me
1: the go water my- Let's go back to the early days of Talking Heads, you were opening around the world, first at CBGBs and then around the world for the Ramones. Yes, The Ramones were in a way the opposite of you. They were kids from Queens. They didn't have the money and education that you had and or that any of you had in Talking Heads. And they were churlish and they were more destructive and then ultimately quite self-destructive none of them are alive and there you and Tina are not only alive but still thriving still married i mean it's not it's not every day
0: yeah it's not that
1: your business is not really suited to monogamy and fidelity
0: you you are correct. Um,
1: what did it, you and Tina do when you were traveling and David Byrne and Jerry Harrison were single and the groupies and so on would come and inundate you backstage?
0: Well, you know, I'm sorry to say, we didn't really have groupie inundations. Um, we, what? We, we what? The, the kind of the kind of girls that Talking Heads appealed to for the most part were not your regular rock and roll groupie types. They were the girls that, you know, uh, wrote poetry or designed their own clothes <laughs> or uh, nowadays teach a yoga class.
1: Oh, that's but, so funny. Yeah. yeah.
0: But we had a different type of following than the Ramones or, say, the New York Dolls had. And uh, because we were a different type of band and we played a different type of music from them. But I can tell you, just to digress a little bit, working with the Ramones was so great. You know, we we got to tour with them. They had been to Europe one time before, or to England, rather. So uh, they had a little bit more experience touring than we did. But we were very fortunate to be offered the opening act for this tour of Europe in 1977, the spring. Uh, We went over in the month of April, and we worked into the month of June. It It was a pretty good long tour, and it was at the heyday of punk music. And I can tell you that every show was sold out. Every show, the kids went nuts, and not just for the Ramones, but also to a slightly lesser extent for our band, for Talking Heads. I mean, can you imagine seeing Talking Heads and the Ramones on the same bill? No, no, actually. And and, uh, so it was a very interesting bill. And it was, uh, as I say, it was at the heyday of punk. And all the promoters really had to do in Europe was to put up a poster that said, two bands from CBGBs, New York Rock, and the show would sell out. So
1: CBGBs, as you've described it in your book, and also now, was really a brand well-known around the world to punk aficionados.
0: Yes, it was. And how they found this out was that, well, the music press in Europe was quite active. They had like weekly publications. You know, in America, we had Rolling Stone like what? Every month? Once a
1: month. Yeah, once a month. Yeah.
0: And Rolling Stone, at least by nineteen seventy seven, was pretty mainstream. But in England and in France and in Holland they had these weekly magazines that so they needed new information, new you know, new stories every week. Right. And they
1: hungered for information yes, about yes, Americans. Exactly. And okay, you talk about now April nineteen seventy seven until May. Your memory Is unbelievable for a guy who was on the road, which to me, having been just a mere author on the road, I don't remember was that April, was that January, was it, you know, cold or hot out? (laughs) And by the way, I don't remember the detail that you remember. And I was not smoking the amount of pot or doing any of the other things that you did. How do you remember the detail?
0: Well, you know, I still smoke a lot of pot.
1: <laughs> That's a but, beautiful thing, Chris. But,
0: but actually, I don't smoke it anymore. I do the edibles, the mm-hmm. you know, which are better for the lungs. But, you know, I'm just blessed with a good memory. I'm knocking on wood because, you know, my mother had Alzheimer's. And um, a lot of my friends, for example, when I met David Byrne, the guy, I was making a uh, he asked me to help make a soundtrack, a musical piece for this student film, RISD student film. He was making of his girlfriend getting run over by a car,
1: as and, one does. And he knew yes. he,
0: he knew he knew I played drums, and he said, "Chris, could you create a piece of music that's like really cacophonous and crescendos, and then fades out for this scene of my girlfriend getting hit by a car?" And I I said, sure, man, I can do that. And he said, you mind if I bring a friend who plays guitar? And I said, sure, man, that'd be great. And so uh, we met where I was keeping my drums at Tina's Carriage House near Brown on the corner of Hope and Benevolent. Actually, the Brown tennis courts were right there. Oh, yeah. And I was keeping my drums there. Thanks to Tina. So because her
1: parents moved to Providence while she was a student at RISD.
0: Yes, yes. So anyway, my friend came in. He introduced me to David. I kind of recognized David, although he had a now had a completely different look than he had in earlier days. But uh, we did the piece of music. My friend recorded it on his Nagra tape recorder that he borrowed from the school. You know. And uh, he can't remember a single thing about it. (laughs) I mean, he's the the girlfriend. He not only can't remember introducing me to David Byrne, he can't even remember the film. He does. He does remember his girlfriend. But he said to me, oh, you must be thinking of Gus Van Zandt, (laughs) who was another classmate of ours. And I said, no, no, I know the difference between Gus Van Zandt and you, Mark.
1: Wow. that is crazy.
0: Yeah, you're right. You I, are I have, so
1: lucky. I have. You could have titled your book, Remain in Great Memory. <laughs> Remain in Cognitive Uplift or cognitive strength.
0: Well, let's hope this cognitive strength lasts.
1: Yeah, I mean, you may need to be an exhibit at the Smithsonian. Seriously. (laughs) Drink, smoking, or ingesting pot for 50 years and the memory that you have for detail. I mean, it's, I know there are pictures that can jog a memory and you've probably been photographed a lot, but
0: still. And you know, Tina was in 1977 when we went to Europe for the first time. Tina was our tour manager. Well, we had a professional tour manager, but she was the one that kept the books for Talking Heads.
1: I know you said that. That was so crazy that she'd come back at the end and nobody expected this tiny little woman to be in charge of the exchequer.
0: Yes, but she kept not exactly uh, journals, but she kept uh, date books that she would buy at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. the the one for 1977 has King Tut on the cover. Remember that that show?
1: I do. I uh, do.
0: So she would write down the date of the show, like, okay, this day we played Paris at the Bataclan Theater. It was a great show. The promoters were good. The hotel was nice. We should come back to this spot. So she she kept dates like that so I could review her date books, and that really helped jog my memory quite a bit.
1: Now, one of the revelations in the book, of course, is the, I don't want to call it a conflict, but the difference of opinion in the creative contributions of you and Tina on one side and David Byrne on the other side. It yeah. seems that David Byrne took an enormous amount of credit for the music that you wrote.
0: Yes, well, David has a thing with credit. He tends to not understand where other people begin and he stops, he ends, or, or vice versa. It's just something about the way he is, and we had to learn to work with him in spite of that. Now, some people have said, "Well, why didn't you just quit?" And I, I usually say to them, "Well." Would you want to be the guy who quit talking heads like when they were just getting going before they had this enormous success? Would you want to be that guy? And, um, well,
1: and also you and Tina co wrote Psycho Killer.
0: Yes, we did. And, uh, so
1: why let him just play it when it was yours, also?
0: Well, we can play it anytime we want. But the credit issue was an ongoing thing, and we we learned to just kind of roll with it. Because, you know, every rock and roll band has a person who's problematic in the band. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And uh, in this case, he was also a magnificent artist and frontman and completely unique, which is why we worked with him. You know, when you talk about artists working together, Sometimes the reason that artists work together is not a rational reason. It's not like if you join a law firm and you bring this to the law firm and that's why they want you to be in the law firm. It's not like that there are intangible things and things that are just kind of, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, the word was metaphysical. There are actually metaphysical aspects to being in a successful artistic adventure. And, uh, you know, between David and Tina and I and later Jerry Harrison, we had some great accomplishments in spite of a few problems.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're right. Many bands have had troubles or falling out or fallings out. Uh-huh. I mean, the Beatles didn't stay together for that long. Yeah. Was it hard to perform with David when there were these underlying tensions between you?
0: Not really. When we got on stage, everything was great. (laughs) You know, it was like we had to disassociate ourselves from the business world and stuff like that and just think about the art. And, you know, I've said this before, and I say it in my book. Yes, we were interested in making some money. That would be wonderful to make some money. And we love the idea of being famous because Andy Warhol said it was great to be famous, you know? Uh-huh. But what we really wanted to do was make our mark in music history. That was our ultimate goal. And thank goodness we, we did that.
1: You did do that. I remember trying to describe the music I was listening to in the late 70s and early 80s because... If you think of screaming punk, you don't think of talking heads. I used to think of you as not an art band because that made you sound too particular and not a band that made me want to dance. But it was kind of an art band in the sense that you were inventing something new that we hadn't experienced before.
0: Yes. uh, One thing about Talking Heads that was instilled in us at the Rhode Island School of Design was that it's okay to be influenced by the bands that have come before you, the artists that have come before you. It's fine to use them as a source of inspiration. But when you get down to it, your creation has to be something that's unique unto yourself. You can't be a copycat. Mm -mm. That's no good. So with Talking Heads, it just became our way of doing things. It had to be unique and artistically compelling or else we weren't going to do it.
1: Now, at least the three of you, and David was born in Scotland, if I'm not mistaken. That's correct. Were American wasps whose parents did more straight things and had (laughs) some privilege and and had maybe a boat or a country house or both. How did everybody's parents? How everybody was okay. There was, seemed to be no problem when you told your parents we're gonna play music and live in a loft and live together, and maybe we'll make some money. Maybe we'll have heat. It'll be fine.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, my parents were always, and Tina's also very encouraging in regarding our artistic project, whether it was painting or theater or music. I mean, my mom used to take me to the Youth Symphony in Pittsburgh, and uh, used to tune in to the uh, Young you know, People's L- Concert, Leonard Bernstein's Young yeah. People's Concert, and things like that. And later on, she loved the Beatles. My my father would say, "Oh, Suzanne, you're such an Anglophile,"
1: <laughs> <laughs> but but
0: but um, she didn't like the Beach Boys because she thought they were too whiny, too nasal. But, uh-huh. but but she loved the Beatles, and I think she even liked the Rolling Stones, but Whoa. but she never really admitted that.
1: That's so funny. So she got it. They never gave you a hard time about. Well, can't you do what you? Oh no, I was going to say, can't you do what your brother's doing? But your brother is in a band too.
0: Yes, my brother is in the Urban Verbs down in Washington D.C., and they made two records for Warner Brothers. But my sister ended up in. Uh, she went to Wharton after graduating from Wellesley, and she's as a very successful champagne business now.
1: Whoa. Yeah,
0: it's great.
1: How great. Yeah. And so you all had parental support. You all, I would imagine when your parents first saw Didi Ramon, they might have said, Hmm.
0: Well, you know, it's funny you mentioned that. They went to see the Ramones in Pittsburgh. My my family lived in Pittsburgh at that time. And they, the Ramones played this little, uh, Talking Heads played there the following week, this little pizza parlor next to the University of Pittsburgh called Antonino's. And my parents went to see them and they were like, you can imagine how loud the Ramones were. But my parents were like, oh boy, I can't wait till next week when Talking Heads come. <laughs>
1: Wow, are
0: you lucky? And um, you know, you mentioned wealth. Uh, my parents had some wealth in their later years, but in the the younger days, uh, I mean, yes, we had we eventually had our own house and everything. But my father was in the military, as was Tina's father, and you know, military officers they don't get paid a lot of money. True, right? And, and uh, they get a good pension but the weekly salary is not enormous. (laughs) And uh, my father always said, Chris, you don't have to be rich. You just have to have rich friends. (laughs) (laughs) And you know what I'm talking about.
1: That's absolutely true. I think I do. I think I do. Um, Chris, you were wearing, as you say in the book, Levi's and Lacoste's to perform, which I'm wearing right now. I mean, that's basically my wardrobe. But that preppiness, that yankiness of yours, that was okay too? When you first started performing, you all just dressed yourselves as you wanted.
0: Yes. We weren't about to wear stage costumes the way some bands do. I mean, let's face it, the Ohio Players or Marvin Gaye or the Stones looked real cool in stage costumes, but we knew that we were trying to do a different type of thing. That, mm-hmm. that uh, something uh, maybe a little less predictable, and I'm not knocking stage costumes. I'm just saying that our decision was to wear the clothes our mothers gave us for Christmas.
1: <laughs> that is great. That is great. Now, um, after Talking Heads stopped performing together, you and Tina started Tom Tom Club, which is another one of these dreamy things because. By now you're recording in the Bahamas and you're having living part of your life down there and life is good. Life continues to be good. And Tom Tom Club had a number one hit, which Talking Heads never ever had. True. I mean you couldn't it's you true. couldn't help but succeed together.
0: Yeah, we were very fortunate. You know, uh, the first Tom, Tom Club album was, I always describe it as being like like magic. I don't know how it came out to be so popular and so influential, but it did. And um, we've been trying to catch that magic ever since (laughs) with varying degrees of success. But we just, you know, we worked really hard and we brought everything we could to the table, you know, everything we had. So it it wasn't like it was easy, but, Mm -hmm. but when you sat back and listened, it was like, whoa, man. This is really good. And uh, I remember uh, when we did Tom Tom Club, Chris Blackwell of Island Records, he's an Etonian. Mm-hmm. He, uh, he's <laughs> raised in Jamaica. He knew us. He said, Chris and Tina, come on down to Compass Point and cut a single. And if I like the single, then you can do a whole album. So we came down to Compass Point and we recorded a song which turned out to be Wordy Rapping Hood. And we called him to listen to uh, a rough mix of it when we were more or less finished. And I could just see his grin, you know, from ear to ear. And when it finished, he said, would you play that again? And, and he, <laughs> he liked it even better the second time.
1: The words, words, words? words in papers, words in books, words on TV. Words, 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 words of Did you actually see dollar signs over his irises in his eyes?
0: <laughs> well, he was a very wealthy man already, but he was always on the lookout for a hit. And so he said, All right, Chris and Tina, I want to release this right away as a single in Europe, the UK, and Latin America. So we said, Cool. And it went to like top ten in pretty much every single country it was released. And In Argentina, it was number one for like 10 weeks.
1: Wow! And
0: you can sell a lot of records in South America. So it it was great. And then finally, our American record company woke up and said, oh, I guess we should release this after all, because they had not expressed any interest in a project from Chris and Tina. They gave David Byrne a record deal. They gave Jerry Harrison a record deal, but they were like, we can't give every member of the band a record deal. So, uh,
1: <laughs> yeah, that was pretty lame.
0: So, pretty so, lame. So, they, they woke up when Chris Blackwell had exported or rather imported into the United States 150,000 12 inch singles and sold them all. Genius of Love.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: They woke up and, and we had an album deal in the US. Uh,
1: Incredible.
0: Yeah. Incredible.
1: And um, how was it raising children while you were in a band?
0: Well, it was challenging, but we love our kids, and they've turned out really well knocking on wood again. <laughs> but, they, <laughs>
1: but, but seriously, did they come with you once they started school? Did you stop touring? Did you have nannies coming on tour with you with the kids? We, I mean, it's, it's hard enough being a first-time parent without a band.
0: We did. We had to rely on nannies uh, and also our parents. And fortunately, uh, it all worked out okay. But yeah, when school became a serious thing for the children, we had them in public schools because the public schools were much cooler about having them come and go mm-hmm. with our travels. And we live up here in Connecticut, and the public schools are very good. Eventually, realized that it's not good to be away from the children for any length of time, especially. Um, one time we were away for six weeks, you know, without them. And, and we realized that was a big mistake. So, uh, we, we made our tours shorter. We would tour in little bursts, like 10 days to two weeks, things like that.
1: Well, I'm sure your kids, you said they turned out great. And I'm sure one other thing is that they, um, they had the coolest parents in school.
0: (laughs) Well, um, just, you're yeah. you're probably right.
1: <laughs> what when you are a rocker in your 60s is being cool still cool?
0: Well, it's it's harder and harder to be cool, but <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I Tina's cool as hell. I mean, every day, and I'm doing my best.
1: Well, it's great, great, great talking to you. I thoroughly immersed myself in your book and I stopped and played cuts of your songs. I had a, I gave myself an audiovisual experience.
0: That's a good way to do it.
1: Yeah. And I really, I thrilled to the detail to the years of fear of punk in 1977 to talking heads and your journey together and apart from David Byrne and, uh, I really enjoyed reading about the love you have for your wife, for your life, your appreciation, which is a lot of what this podcast is about.
0: Well, thank So Chris,
1: you. thank you so much. And I think it's time to hear the five things that make your life better.
0: Oh, good. I've been waiting for this part.
1: Some people like this the best, Yeah. some people like it the least. Okay.
0: Okay. Shall I start with number one? Let's start with
1: number one. Yeah.
0: Number one of the five things that make my life better are my two beagles, Poppy and Kiki. Poppy is now 13. Wow. And Kiki is eight. They've traveled with us. Poppy has been to Europe 12 times.
1: Wow. She
0: couldn't go this year because of the pandemic. So right. Kiki has been to Europe six times.
1: What turned you into a beagle lover? Well,
0: we had a beagle when I was young. She was actually a birthday present on my brother's eighth birthday. Ever since that dog, we've always preferred beagles. They're, they're not the easiest dogs to train, but they're full of love, and they're, um, they're just fun, and they have a really good smell. You know, they they don't smell bad.
1: Oh, note to self. Yeah. Next dog may be a beagle.
0: Oh, and I I was going to say, I think my next book, they might be characters, uh, sort of featured characters in my next book, which I'm kind of planning. Ooh. Uh, Yeah.
1: Oh, very cool. Yeah. Okay, number two.
0: Number two, Tropical Islands. When I was a kid, I used to, you know, I used to love things like Swiss Family Robinson and uh, Treasure Island and mm-hmm. stories like that. You know, there were always... Palm-
1: Gilligan's Island.
0: <laughs> yeah, Gilligan, yeah, that one too. There, was, there were always palm trees and tropical drinks and people having a good time on the beach. And it, but I never got to a tropical island myself until we recorded our second album, More Songs About Buildings and Food. Down at Compass Point in the Bahamas. And uh, I loved it so much. We actually bought a little apartment down there to live. And I've also been to, you know, Barbados and I've been to Puerto Rico and I've been to Haiti and I've been to Jamaica. Love them all. I like the people, I like the food. Although some of these islands are not really known for their. Hot cuisine. <laughs> mm-hmm. But but uh, I, I love the ambiance.
1: And do you still have a place at Compass Point? We do. Oh, nice. We do.
0: In fact, I, I'm getting some new hurricane-proof glass put into the, the windows there. Um, oh,
1: neat. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's something so relaxing about being on an island. You feel sort of off in your own bubble.
0: Yes, exactly.
1: And number three...
0: Number three, I said, was visiting Brittany in France. Brittany is where Tina's mother and her whole mother's side of the family was born and grew up. And, and Tina spent a lot of time there as, as a young person, particularly in the summers. You know, Brittany is the northwest corner of France and it's kind of comparable to the main coast. You know, oh, cr- right. Cre- rocky rocky coast with cliffs and craggy boulders and things. But it's also the Celtic part of France. Uh, it has a lot in common with Wales and with Ireland and Scotland, mm-hmm. and those type of people. And Tina's mother kept their family home there. Tina's mother is no longer alive, but Tina became kind of the steward of that home. So we spend a lot of time there. We used to go for a week and then we go for two weeks and then three weeks. And the last time we stayed for I think ten weeks.
1: <laughs> oh nice.
0: And and it's it's a wonderful place. It's like going back in time. People have microwaves and they have cable TV and they have, you know, the internet and all that. But there's something about the quality of life that reminds me of the sixties. Or maybe even huh. maybe even the 1950s. Things are slower and people are more friendly.
1: Oh, that's very nice. So I
0: love it there. And uh, let's see, number four, sailing. You know, I know you know about prep schools, and I, I went to a. I've
1: heard about. I went him. to yeah. a
0: prep school in Virginia for a couple of years on the Rappahannock River, and one of the sports programs they had was sailing, and I got you know I I, I really enjoyed it. We would even go out what we now call frostbiting in the winter months when it was free- wow. freezing, cold, yeah, but still fun. And then I didn't sail for years until I met Tina, whose father is a retired admiral. And together with her parents, we bought a sailboat, a really nice one, a sloop. And we cruised all up and down the uh, east coast of the United States and down to the Bahamas numerous visits to the Bahamas and all through the, you know, there's 700 islands down there in the Bahamas. So we really got around and we traveled to most of the good ones. (laughs) And, um, and I, we found that this was during the peak of talking heads. And we found that it was a really good way to blow off steam and to clear your head and to sort of reposition yourself for the next
1: tour (laughs) and well because you were away from media you were away from news you were just in nature right
0: yes exactly and it it was a great way to spend time with our children also so oh yes so we love that we unfortunately we had to let that sailboat go to a very nice british man who bought it from us bought her from us but now we joined a little uh a little yacht club nearby, and they have boats that are all rigged and ready to go, like 18 foot long, they call them ideal 18s. And we go out on those just on a whim, you know?
1: And you don't have to maintain it.
0: We don't have to maintain it. And we sail around the Long Island Sound just very casually. And it's really groovy.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like a dream. And number five.
0: Number five is soul music. You know, I I love all types of music. I really do. I'm very uh, Catholic in my musical taste, but there's something about soul music that never fails me. And I'm talking about James Brown, Otis Redding, sadly, Mary Wilson from the Supremes died.
1: Yes, who died today. Died today. And
0: I mean, the Motown music. But particularly uh, Southern Soul comes out of, let's say, Memphis, Tennessee, like Stax.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, Stax Records, yeah, right? You know,
0: Otis Redding, Sam and Dave, Booker T and the MGs, Isaac Hayes, all that stuff just grooves me to no end.
1: <laughs> How do you listen to music these days?
0: Well, uh, we just got a new techniques turntable, and I listen to it always. I listen to it on the internet. I listen to MP3s. I listen to vinyl. I listen to CDs. I listen to the radio. I'll take it any way I can get it.
1: (laughs) Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you, Chris. Uh,
0: To you too, Lisa. Keep up the good work. I especially enjoyed your Thanksgiving podcast. That was good. (laughs)
1: Oh, well, thank you so much. You you bet. Well, I think you get a bonus for being an actual listener. (laughs) (laughs) You've been listening to five things that make life better with me, Lisa Birnbach. My guest this week has been Chris France drummer and founding member of Talking Heads and Tom Tom Club and a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. His new memoir, Remain in Love, is published by St. Martin's Press. You can follow Chris on Twitter at Chris France, TTC, capital TTC, on Instagram at France Chris, or on Facebook at Chris France. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. My blog is at lisabernbach.com where you'll find links and photos to all the things in this program and maybe even a picture of Poppy and Kiki Ooh. if we can get one. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> Think about that. This podcast is produced in New York City by TheFieldTV.com. My engineer is Kevin Watkins. My team is Spresso Rucci, Michael Port, Boko Haft, and Sam Haft. Until next week, wear a mask and act natural. Bye-bye.
0: That was Five Things with Lisa Bernbach. New episodes every Friday, if she remembers.